Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill. Each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Um, our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared stories save lives. So today my guests are Sherelle and Alan. Uh, they're members of Gamblers Anonymous and they're going to be talking about their experience of compulsive gambling and how GA has helped them. So, welcome to the studio this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. So, we usually start talking about um, what it's like growing up and, and what sort of things influenced your life and potentially the things that led you towards gambling. So, Alan, what was life like for you growing up? Um, it was actually quite good. I haven't got a lot of me- early memories of my childhood. Basically... Um, I was the youngest of uh, four, five, I should say. Um, unfortunately, my eldest brother had a terminal illness and he died when he was 27 and I was uh, somewhere six, seven, eight. I'm not exactly sure. But um, my father used to run with his brothers, rotate um, a card night every Sunday night. And right from my earliest memories, and I can even remember they were listening to Test Cricket on the radio playing cards, um, and I thought this was heaven, you know, that that environment was heaven. And so I was was actually um, drawn to it and um, excited about it. Um, So that led me um, to the liking of cards. Um, And then I... Even throughout my school, um, when I went to secondary school, I run a card game of a Thursday night. My parents had a caravan, um, and I used to run a, a card game in that every Thursday night. Um, and it led me. Um, I got when I finished school, I chose a career path. I got tangled up. I'm a, a, tra- a fitter by trade, um, and I got tangled up in the construction and contract, and worked all over the country. Um, I loved that. Um, I loved the rush of it. Um, I didn't gamble. I was a binge gambler. I never wasn't out of control, and I, I enjoyed it. I loved it actually. I loved that lifestyle. Um, unfortunately, if you're a contractor um, and like that environment, work environment, once it's in your blood, you can't do anything else. Yeah, um, right. that, that's the sad part about it. Yeah. No way could I go back to working in a factory or doing maintenance work or anything like that. So. I was um, drawn to that that lifestyle. So, but anyway, uh, I was born in forty five. I'm seventy four now. Um, <clears throat> basically, um, bopped along doing that for a while. It was great. And the generation I come from, if you weren't married and had two and a half kids in a picket fence by a certain age, you're ostracised. Although you were considered there was something wrong with you. Um, so I conformed to that, which was a disaster. Um, every fibre in my body was telling me, don't do this, but I went through with it. Um, and that really wasn't a recipe for a long, long-term long relationship. Um, we had a couple of children um, in that relationship. And eventually um, that 
um, broke down that relationship. <clears throat> what happened was my youngest child um, had a behavioural problem, a severe behavioural problem, and my ex-wife or wife then, um, she was a triple certificate nurse, so and, but she couldn't handle him, and I still respect her to this day for a woman in that era to say she didn't love her kid and couldn't handle it was took yeah. a lot of doing. Yeah. Um, so I still respect her to this day, not that I've seen her for a long time. Anyway, we had a bit of court uh, a custody battle. Um, she wanted custody of the elder one, and, and uh, I... Uh, as it turned out, the court, in their wisdom, gave a split decision, which was unusual there in, in those days um, for the, the male to get uh, uh, a custody of any description. The, uh, so uh, that was a real issue because what that meant, I had to change my lifestyle completely because I had the responsibility of him to look after. He was still in nappies, actually. The, um, and I... One thing that I've always done in throughout my life, I don't know whether it's a plus or a minus, was if I committed, I've tried to follow through, yeah. whether it was good or bad. Um, <clears throat> so because I had to give up the work and I had to go back um, and work in a factory environment and that type of work, he copped the brunt of my um, behaviour, um, not in a physical way but definitely in an emotional way to the point of... When I, when I needed to gamble and I couldn't gamble because of the responsibility of him, he, he wore the, the brunt of that, which had an impact on him. There's no two ways about that. So I had him um, for about five-odd years, I think. Um, that, to, that must have been hard if you were still working remotely. So It was, what, yeah, yeah. 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 At the time I was living at, in Wallace, um, which is just this side of Ballarat, uh, Melbourne side of Ballarat, I should say. Um, <clears throat> I was working at North Melbourne and um, I used to have to drop and I was heavily involved with dogs. I was breeding and showing dogs at the time. That was going to be my utopia. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that all had to be sacrificed. So a neighbour which lived in the next town used to look after him, used to drop him off at her place about 6.30, uh, 6 a.m., or a bit before 6 a.m., and I never got back to pick him up till 6 p.m. at night. Wow. And that was just too much, so yeah. I realised that. So I had to sell up, get out, get out of surrender my utopia yeah. um, <clears throat> and move into Melbourne into a rented premises with, which made it so he could have um, I could t- drop him off at um, childcare and so forth and then mm. he'd school and then um, after a while she was still having visitation and all that mm. with our, our relationship was really platonic but very good yeah. um, I respected mm. her decision and she respected what I was trying to do um, so she decided after a while she'd like to try and take him for take him back to get the boys back together again. And I said, yeah, no problem. Couldn't get there quick enough. Anyway, so we decided to to take him on a trial period for six months. And if it worked out, all well and good. And it did work out. Um, that was that was that was my get out of jail card, really, because that allowed me to get back into construction and the environment, a lifestyle that I enjoyed and liked. Yeah. Um, that I could generate good money from. Yeah. Listen, the, I might just stop you there. Yes. We might just cut across to Sherelle and just ask. So, what was your life like growing up? Um, family supportive and. Yeah, well, I was the youngest of four kids. Yeah. Um, had a very loving mum and dad. Um, had 
two brothers and a sister. So um, me being the baby of the family, it was, if you ask my brothers and sister, I always got away with murder. So, you know, I was able to do, you know, whatever I sort of wanted. But, you know, I remember having both my parents being around, both loving, both caring, uh, never had any issues with them. Um, And then my parents actually uh, bought a takeaway food shop um, and things sort of changed a little bit then. Um, I was 11 at the time and things, I sort of had to fend for myself a little bit. Um, but then I also had to work in, in the, shop. the shop. So <laughs> it was like, you know, you, you couldn't really do a great deal. Um, whereas my siblings were older and that all moved on. Um, so they were the lucky ones I used to always think. Um, and then... Uh, as the years sort of went on, my parents, um, the way that they dealt with each other, my dad did drink um, and my mum would put up with a lot of, um, you know, sort of the stuff that my dad would do. Um, he wasn't abusive to the sense, but it was just the alcohol that would that would come out. Alcohol talking, yeah. Yeah, mm. and it was difficult. Yeah. Um, so I just remember... Um, at a younger age, my parents used to talk through me. Yeah. Uh, I hated it, you know. I just remember my dad would come home from work and both my parents worked in the takeaway food shop but my dad would always stay there later and so mum would come home and it would be mum and I in the kitchen or in the lounge room talking and carrying on like pork chops as you do. Yeah. Um, and then we'd see my dad riding up on his pushy because he didn't have a licence and we'd be like, ah. Oh, Okay, and I'd say to my mum, I'm going to my bedroom. Yeah, I'd go off to the bedroom because I knew that as soon as he'd walk in, they would not talk and you could cut the knife, like the air of the knife. It was just horrible. Um, But then I did still get along with both of my parents. I didn't have an issue with either of them. Um, And then when I was in high school, I had an incident happen at school... um, and that changed me quite a bit. Um, unfortunately, it didn't get dealt with like it does these days when yep. things happen. Um, I moved schools and tried to move on as best as I could and put that behind me. Um, I then met my husband when I was 18. Um, and then when I turned 19, my parents separated. My dad moved to Cairns. Um, they lost their business, they lost their home, they lost everything. Um, but I remember I was very excited. Who gets excited that their parents separate? I yeah. was because yeah. I went, well, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Um, love my parents both to death. Like I'd do anything, you know, for them. And that was really hard because then it was just my mum and I. Um, my dad moved up to Cairns and... My mum didn't know what to do. We then had to move in with my nan um, because we had nothing else. We didn't didn't have anywhere else to live and mum couldn't afford rent. And so we moved in with my, my nan. And, you know, I had a fantastic relationship with my mum. My mum was my best friend. Um, I met my husband and probably about four years later we bought a house together and I moved out to the northern suburbs. Um, 
things were really, you know, I was happily in love and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And then we got married um, in 2001 and had our first child when, um, in 2002. Um, things were going really well. I was happy, in love, had our second child in 2004, um, had a few issues with both pregnancies or births with both of my children um, and then sort of had a really bad bout of depression. I didn't realise at the time what it was. I just thought that I was just having a downward moment but um, got to the point where I just wanted to drive my car on the wrong side of the road. Wow. Um, and didn't want to be here. I didn't have the kids in the car with me so it was just me um, but I knew then that there was something not quite right and I needed, I needed help. I rang my doctor um, and she called me in there straight away and that's when I was diagnosed with having severe depression. Mm. Um, that was over 14 years ago now um, and I still deal with my depression. Um, I've been diagnosed from having, you know, just severe depression to mild depression, having bipolar disorder. I've been, you know, there's so many different things and I've been on so many different medication, it's not funny, but... Um, <clears throat> I always had my rock, which was my mum. Yeah. Um, and then, unfortunately, in 2011, she went on a holiday to Queensland and she passed away up in Queensland. Um, my life came crashing down again. Um, I didn't know how to deal with the loss of my mum. Um, I was at, in a, un, I was unhappy in my marriage at that stage, um, but trying to deal with the loss of my mum part of me died the day she died um and for me to feel close to her um you know the only thing that sort of led me to gambling was when I'd catch up with my mum we used to go to the pokies and have a bit of a poke and that would be the only thing that I'd do but when she passed away I felt so alone and didn't know what to do that I actually one day I went to the pokies dropped my kids off at school Went to the pokies and I actually felt close to my mum. Felt like she was there with me, even though I know she wasn't. But wow. yeah. And I just kept going back. Um, I'd go when my kids were at school or if they were at a sporting thing or if something, you know. I wouldn't go of an evening, so no one knew that I gambled. Um, I did that on my own, you know. When I, At that stage I wasn't working, so, you know, I was a stay-home mum. So I had a lot of time to do it. And it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about, you know, um, any of that sort of stuff. It was just for me to feel close to my mum. You know, it was just that that feeling that it sort of covered that void because I did have that void. Yeah, okay. Um, well, listen, yeah. we might take a break there. Um, we've got um, a song. Uh, this one is called The Last of the True Believers and it's by Nancy Griffith from 1986. Oh, he said it was the sound of the winter calling I'm up around the bend Or it could be the cry of your restless heart Or the love of your long-lost friend Oh, but me, I think it's just the summertime And the heat of these taxis winds They keep on slapping my face with dust So thick that the tears won't roll again uh, You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio And 3CR on digital radio uh, we've got nearly 90 episodes of the show, uh, Living Free Show, available as podcasts on our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree, so you can check them out. 
If you want to send us a message, then you can contact us via 3CR on 9419 8377 um, or email us uh, 3crlivingfree at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter as 3CRlivingfree. Um, I'm talking with Sherelle and Alan, and we're talking about recovery from gambling addiction uh, through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, so, Alan, I, I want to take you back um, a- as a child. Did you have warm feelings towards your family as a child? Um, yes, I did. Um, but it, I, I be- whether it was reciprocated or not, I, I can't add. But I felt I felt it wasn't, you know. Yeah. I never wanted for anything. My parents were very good. Um, and... You know, so I never really wanted for anything, but I didn't feel part of, and I I don't blame them, because they had my oldest brother's medical sciences and wasn't what it is today back then. Yeah. Um, so the whole family's focus had to go to him because of his illness, um, and it was left to my sister who was had the responsibility of looking after the, the new kid on the block, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so. For that period, that's probably why I haven't got a lot of memory of my early childhood. Um, When I made connection with my family again after 30-odd years, whatever it was, um, through a set of circumstances, um, and turned up with them and and we're trying to piece some of the puzzle together, um, it turned out that I was about 12-year-old when he died. And I thought I was about six or seven. Right, okay. Probably yeah. tells a story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the other one I was going to ask you about was when you got married. Living away from home must have been oh. difficult. No, it wasn't actually because as I, as I mentioned before, I got married because it was the dumb thing to do in that era. Um, but what it was, the, I was a good provider, but I couldn't provide the one thing to make a relationship work, and that's love, compassion, and understanding. It wasn't in me. It just wasn't in me. And, it, and that had a huge impact on my life, right throughout my life. Um, I always, you know, I never felt part of a lot of things. I was, I was very good in my work, my profession. I, was very, I had a very schizophrenic in, in, um, life. Yeah. Um, my private life and personal life, was totally separate from. I was, I was very good in a personnel schools. So used to have very good in a personnel schools. Um, my professional life, I was very successful and done very well. Um, <clears throat> but in my private life, I was a disaster. You know, and and what happened was because of the environment that I was involved in, I drank a lot of alcohol and what have you, and uh, I had a. An issue. I put on a lot of weight, and I collapsed in the shower in, in a donger or work camp where, where we were working at the time. And I went and <laughs> went to the doctor, and the doctor told me, you know, I have to give up all the good things in life and stop drinking, da da da. Um, and I was on put me on tablets, blood pressure tablets, and the only way that I could get through each day back then was by popping this bloody tablet because I nothing changed. I was still drinking and doing all the, the good things. Um, uh, and after I don't know how long um, I thought if I've got to keep taking these tablets to get through each day I'm going to stop drinking and, and I didn't touch alcohol for three or four years um, lost the weight and I went off the tablets and I've been off them ever since um, so basically it was very close to alcohol I was a top up drunk there's no two ways about that and I never knew that because since being in the fellowship of GA I've, I've had 
to, I've got people to AA, um, da da da, and and being at their meetings, I realised I was a top up drunk. This yeah. is twenty years later. Yeah, um, but fortunately that, that addiction wasn't strong enough to 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 mask what I was what I was um, children gambling did basically. Yeah. So the predominant one one out in the end basically. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, Sherelle, um, I think when we left you, um, you're, you said you started gambling to be close to your mum. So yeah. what, was the, what was the feeling like being in a gambling event? So what sort of gambling was it, pokies? Just pokies, yeah. yeah, yeah so what's it like pokies. to be in the pokies on your own, in your own head? Yeah. Well, it was just more that, you know, I... I I would go there and I'd just be picturing my mum sitting next to me and we'd both be rubbing the machine, wishing it luck. Yeah, okay. Um, And that's just what we did. Yeah. Um, And that's what I kept thinking. So every time that I'd go in there, I'd just feel that little bit closer to her and think that she was there. Um, And it just kept escalating that, um, you know, I thought I honestly didn't think I had a problem. And um, I just thought that it was just to be close to my mum because that was the only way that I knew um, to be close to her. So did that have an impact on your marriage? It didn't at the time because no one knew, not even my husband. He's now my ex. Um, He had no idea because I would actually gamble when my kids would be at school um, or when my kids would have something on. I would never gamble when my whole family was home. Um, so I, I sort of look at it that I was a bit of a closet gambler, so no one would know and find out exactly what was going on. No one knew until after the fact, until okay. I stopped gambling. No one knew that I had a gambling addiction. Right. So were you able to sort of forget about everything else when you were gambling? Is that the... Yes, yeah. yeah. I forgot about, you know, feeling unhappy in my marriage. Um, I'd forget that, yes, my mum wasn't about because I'd be somewhere where we both enjoyed going. Um even when my mum was alive, it wasn't massive gambling that we did with each other, but that was something that we'd go and do and it was an outlet that we'd go and have a little bit of fun and, um, you know, but it wasn't a, a massive thing. We didn't gamble huge amounts or any of that sort. It was just a night to go out and have a little bit of a laugh and spend some time with my mum. So I forgot all my worries when I'd go there. It just that's all it did. It just I focused on all the little, the you know, the the um, noises of the yeah the sounds yeah games yeah. and and all that sort of stuff so yeah okay um, so gambling requires money so did money become a problem yes it did unfortunately so um, how did that happen in the end I wasn't managing money I still paid all our bills um, that was one thing that was always adamant I always paid the mortgage and paid the bills and did everything that I needed to do but in order to then sort of have the lifestyle that my husband was used to um it sort of lacked in that I didn't have as much money to gamble so um I used to use the credit card to pay my gambling addiction um, and it wasn't huge amounts of money that I'd do but over the course of the time obviously it does add up um, and then uh, it sort of got to the point where I was working and I stole from my work to help pay for my gambling debt, um, living and for my gambling at the same time. So, uh, yeah, it was a sort of a horrible sort of, you know, 
cycle that I was in, um, but I didn't know how else to get out of it, and I honestly didn't think that I had a gambling issue. Mm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't yeah, it? How you yeah. can yeah do that. Um, so back to you, Alan. Um, so what was your progression with gambling? Did you always stay with cards and and sort of binge gambling? For, yeah, I was a binge gambler, and cards were my my poison, so to speak. Um, but what happened, and um, and you know, the I planned my binges, and and it was okay um, if the if I finished that binge with no money, that was fine. That was a perfect binge. If yeah. I finished that with a plus, that was a, that was okay. But if I f- if it didn't last as long as I anticipated, because in those days I'd only worked nine months of the year, on average, depending mm. on the job. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so and and every job I finished off. I'd be planning my next binge the whole time I was working. Do you want to, ex- do you want to explain a binge to people? Because a lot of people won't really understand that terminology. Uh, right. <laughs> it's it's a, 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 a block of time devoted totally to gambling 24-7. Right. Um, <clears throat> the pr- prelude to that is planning it when I was out on the scrub or whatever. Yeah. So that absorbed. I wasn't actually physically gambling. I was Clayton's gambling. Yeah. I was planning the binge. Yeah. So and what happened was the binges got longer and closer together and da-da-da. Um, <clears throat> but in the what basically that was fine. It was never about dollars. Dollars was just, it was, you know, the means to the end. That provided the escape, yeah. basically. That's yeah. all it was. <clears throat> and I can tell you a story about money after later on but basically what happened was um in april of 96 i decided to become a self-funded retiree i'd done fairly well like i had wins where i could go and buy substantial bits and pieces and i finished up with a very good portfolio um which led me in a left me and i positioned my place in life that i had no responsibilities i was completely alone um, and only me to worry about. So I'd been angling to get to that point pretty much all my life. Yep. I had the resources to do it. Perfect um, storm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's per- that's a good way. I've never thought of it that way, but it was a, a perfect storm waiting to explode. Yep. So from that point in April of 96, the next four-year period was pretty horrific. I went from... Um, um, when I ran out of my resources, I was finished up obtaining money illegally on a daily basis. As my assets disappeared, my quality standard of living deteriorated accordingly. Um, I finished up in court on more than one occasion in that period. But eventually, machines got me. The uh, and the I'll tell you how much of an issue money isn't. Um, I can remember not long before I got to the fellowship. I was living in a sleazy board house in St Kilda. Wouldn't pay the rent on that, and da da da. So it's been nothing for me to be gambling in that period of time. Thirty hours, straight, not an issue. The uh, anyway, there's one time the bloody excuse the language. The machine kept spitting money out at me, and I had a heap of money, um, and I was so physically exhausted. I'd positioned myself at that point in time in St Kilda in a sleazy board house in the middle of three 24-hour venues. And I thought that was pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so anyway, I, I was so physically exhausted, I couldn't drag myself off that I managed to get home. I put my head on the pillar and all I could hear was the bells and whistles. I couldn't sleep. 
um, because at that stage I couldn't walk out of a venue if I had money in my pocket because mm. I had a, a, a pocket full of money. So what I did, I literally burnt that money. I set fire. And it's not easy to burn plastic. Mm. It takes a bit to get going. Mm. And, and you know, I, I, um, so I actually burned it. I got some rest and I did still don't know how long I slept for. I woke up. And the first thing, and I kept saying to myself when I fell, I fell asleep, that this is crazy. People don't do this sort of thing, you know. The, uh, <clears throat> um, so the first thing I did when I woke up, at that stage I was obtaining money illegally on a daily basis, went you know, to, got some more money, straight back in. Or nothing changes, nothing changes. So eventually that led me to picking up the phone. Gambling never beat me. What beat me was the pain and misery I let gambling generate in my life. That's what beat me. Yeah. Um, gambling isn't the issue. I was the issue. The, uh, and it was convenient for me um, to blame gambling for the situation I let myself into. Well, the uh, so And that led me to my first meeting, basically picking up the phone. That was a bit of an episode in itself to get to my first meeting, but I did get there. So, yeah. yeah, that's good. <laughs> Well, listen, we might take another break. Um, This time we've got a song called Get Out of This House and it's by Sean Colvin. I hope you enjoy it. Listen to Hillbilly Fever every Saturday night from 11pm to 2am for classic country artists like Hank Williams, Moon Mullican, Lefty Vazell, Hank Snow and many more. Remember, Hillbilly Fever every Saturday night from 11pm only on 3CR. And do it all You're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking with Cherelle and Alan, and we're talking about gambling and how Gamblers Anonymous can help. Um, so I'll, I'll start with you, um, Cherelle. You, you said you started getting into a lot of debt. Yep. And what happened? Well, then I um, I was working. Um and I was a bookkeeper, and the only way that I could see myself getting out of that debt um, and to help um, pay other bills and kids' upbringing and the lifestyle that my husband liked having was that I would um, steal money from where I was working. Um, not my proudest moment, and I am... I live with those regrets that I took that path. But unfortunately, when you gamble, you can't control what how your life goes. I didn't think that I had a gambling problem, but um, now when I look back, yeah, I, I did. Um, but I stole money. Um, that was... I must remember the first time that I, I did steal money, I thought that I'd get caught. I was actually hoping that I'd get caught so that yeah. I wouldn't yeah. ever do it again. Um, 
but it didn't happen. Mm. Um, and I thought, oh, I've gotten away with it. Um, so then I did it again and again. Um, unfortunately, I did it for two and a half years. Wow. It's a long time, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it's a long time looking over your shoulder thinking, is today going to be the day that I'm going to get caught? Yeah. Um, I tried as much as I could to to stop doing that, but unfortunately my you become so involved in what you're doing and gambling just takes over. You just don't you don't even think that, you know, you don't care about what you're doing. No. You're just um, doing it. You're, yeah. just, you're doing it. Yeah. Um and it's just so then I could go to the pokies just so I could, you know, feel close to my mum, but in the end it was just like just so then I could listen to the bells and whistles. Um, even if I won or didn't win. And I've rarely won. Um, and it wasn't huge amounts that I gambled. Um, but unfortunately, the lifestyle that my husband wanted um, didn't, that didn't, I, I wasn't able to gamble with just our own money. So yeah. I had to gamble with other money to have yeah. that lifestyle. My daughter went on, you know, overseas holidays. Um, and my husband never once asked where this money came from for us to be able to do it because he just didn't – he thought that we had the money for it. Yeah, um, yeah. But unfortunately, no, we didn't. No. Um, so how did it stop? How it stopped? Unfortunately, um, I did actually – I left my husband in July um, of 2018 um, and I thought my life was going to go down okay. I thought, no, I won't. I won't steal no money, I won't gamble, won't do anything. I have to get into this new life of mine. I rang Gambler's Help in August, um, early August, to try and say, look, I have a problem, something needs to give here. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't call me back. Um, And then around about the 21st of August, I had a knock on my front door, 6.30 in the morning, um, I was still in bed, so was my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter at this stage. Um, and I opened up the door and here was six to eight police at my front door. Um, it is the most horrific day that I could ever have put my daughter through, um, watching these police go through our house. Um and I knew exactly what they were there for, but I wasn't able to talk to my daughter. They wouldn't let me go near her, wouldn't let me talk to her. Um, I then, obviously, I knew what was going on. I didn't hide anything from them, told them exactly what was going on, what was what. Um, they then arrested me, um, took me to the police station. They left my 16-year-old daughter at home on her own um, with no one. And I regret that. Mm. I regret seeing the look on her face. Um, and that's something that no 16-year-old should have to go through. It must have been shocking, yeah. yeah. Um, so that I remember going to the police station, being interviewed, told them exactly what had happened. They did ask how much I'd stolen, but at that stage I had no idea how much money I'd stolen. Mm. I did have it in a file that I knew, but I never kept a, rec- a tally within my own brain, yeah. but I knew that I'd be able to work it out. Yeah. Um, I was actually hoping, because I'd separated from my husband, that my financial separation would come through and I'd be able to pay my debt and tell my boss exactly what I'd done. But unfortunately, the police 
intervened. Me too. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, and changed my life dramatically. Yeah. Um, I came out of the police station and got a phone call from Gamble's Help. The day that I walked out of the police station, yeah. they decided to ring. So it was like, okay. <clears throat> they then gave me the information of different meetings that I could go to. This is GA. This is yeah. GA, different yeah. Gamblers Anonymous yeah. meetings. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I just thought I need to get all this other stuff around my head first because I was just – I was a mess. Um, I remember – ringing my daughter up and saying – and I thought I was actually on the phone to my ex-husband because he picked our daughter up from my place. Mm. Um, and I just said to him, I can't do this anymore. I want to go. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with life. I'm done with it all. Um, but he had me on speaker and my daughter heard that mm. and she screamed, don't mm. do anything silly, mum. Um, so I spent a few days in bed feeling – sorry for myself and just going, what have I done? I've just ruined my life. I've ruined my kids' lives. All for what? Gambling and stealing money to gamble, to have a lifestyle that we were used to. Um, I then found that there was a meeting in Watsonia on a Sunday and I went to that meeting. And I remember walking into that room for the first day or first night going, oh, I really, honestly, I walked in there thinking I don't need this place. And I what, walked in yeah. there. What can they do? Yeah, yeah they're not going to be able to help me. <laughs> yeah. They they don't have anything. They're, they're not going to be like me. Mm. They're, I'm Nobody is bad as you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the worst of the worst. Um, and I remember sitting in there. I looked at one of the members there and I'm going, oh, my God, he was looked scary. I thought he was going to bite my head off. Um, but you know what? I walked out of that room knowing that I actually had met some truly wonderful people, family even, um, they didn't judge me. They actually, some of them had stories just like mine. Or worse, yeah. Or worse. <laughs> um, and so I then continued, I do three meetings a week um, and I then I went to Reservoir and went to their meeting and found more people just like me or worse. Yep. Um, and then I went to Ivanhoe and did the same thing. Um, and I thank those people, for every one of those meetings, for being there for me. Um, and not judging for what I've done. Um, you know, I'm not proud, um, but I'm definitely not that person that I was when I walked in that door, and that was 328 days ago. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 328 days of no gambling um, and still living with the things that I've done in my past. Um, you know, but I see the way that my kids look at me. My kids are proud of how far I've come. Yeah. It could have gone down the path where my kids wanted nothing more to do with me. Yeah. But, um, you know, I come home with a nine-month key ring and my son, you know, says, how was your night tonight, Mum? And I'll show him the key ring and he's like, I'm so proud of you. My daughter does the exact same thing and that makes it all worthwhile that I know that I haven't damaged my children. Um, one thing I look at it, I go, I have shown them that I'm only human just like everybody else and mums do make mistakes. I yeah. made a massive one. Yeah. It's how I move from, you know, move forward from that and how I teach my kids to move forward from that and that's what Gambling Anonymous has helped me do. Yeah. Um, so I'd be lost without it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, so back to you, Alan. So you came into GA how long ago? 
7,122 days ago. Right. <laughs> What's that in years? Six and... 19 years, six months, okay. and one, uh, six months today. Okay. Uh, seven months. It was New Year's. Last time I gambled was New Year's Eve 99. Okay. Right. Um, so coming into Gambles Anonymous, you you didn't really feel like you wanted to live any longer. That's right. Yeah. So mm. how did how did you well, go the, in the your pro- in jail? I, what happened was I basically I got sick and tired of the pain uh, that I was in. Um, it was horrific. The uh, um, and I had no idea of compulsive gambling. I didn't ever, never heard of the word. Um, never knew anything um, about addiction or fellowships or anything like that. But what I did do, I picked up. Um, the phone rang 013 which was the information number back in those days and the telephonist that answered the phone it wasn't a machine it was a real life person in those days mm. um, answered the lady that answered the phone and I bless her for it because all I could say to her was I can't stop gambling I, I need help I was, I was on my knees and I was crying actually mm. and she gave me the number of GA and I rang it and I was so confused because I was contemplating suicide at that time. All of it, that was constantly on my mind. Um, <clears throat> so I rang it and then I got the instructions had to get to my first meeting, which is Saturday 1 o'clock at South Melbourne. And I, at that stage I'd, I lived in St Kilda and I'd always based myself in St Kilda when every time I got back to Melbourne. The, um, and I'd been in St Kilda at that, t- that point in time, about 19, 15, 19 years, something like that. And I'd never ever been to the end of the pier, um, <laughs> so when I was home, it was all done. Yeah. Um, so, and I walked past this driveway, and I saw people sitting there laughing and having a cigarette and joking. And I didn't have enough gumption to go up and ask them if that was a meeting yeah. for gambling. I went to it was um, um, went to father it was behind Father Bob's house in South Melbourne. I went and knocked on Father Bob's door. And of course he didn't answer, um, and I was sitting there knocking hell out of the door, and I think to myself, "This is great! The bloody mob supposed to get help. And there's no so and so here." So I went home and wallowed in my own misery. And fortunately for me, I did pick the phone up again on the Sunday or Monday. I can't remember exactly, and that got me my first meeting, which was um, Tuesday at one o'clock um, at the same place. And that was a significant event for me, a really significant event, because as soon as I walked into the door, and I still can't qualify that to this day, as soon as I walked into the door, I just knew I was in the right spot. And I, I, as I said before, I can't qualify. But what what was significant about it was a couple of things. One, the hand of friendship was offered to me, and what goes along with that is unconditional love and support. I embraced it, and it embraced me. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me was... <coughs> Um, I knew that I had an illness, there was something wrong with me. That was a hell of a relief to know that there was something wrong with me, that there was a reason for all the bizarre things I was doing and mm. behaviour. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing that I knew, I'd gamble again. And I didn't know when, where, how or why, but I, I knew I would. The way forward for me from that point in time was the only t- only time I felt safe and secure was either at a meeting or with another member. Left to my own devices, I was a mess. The, um, so not exactly sure. It was a three or four weeks before Christmas, actually. So it was on New Year's Eve, and I decided to go back to a place where I used to gamble. And might be someone there to have a drink with and da-da-da, see in the new year. 
and of course I gambled because I was in a venue, yeah. and that was a very indelible um, indent in my mind that if you go if if you're a compulsive gambler and you go into a venue, you'll gamble again. Doesn't matter whether you're going to meetings or not going to meetings. You're putting yourself, and I haven't been into one since. And I don't. There's nothing on this planet important enough to get me into a venue, whether my mother gets reincarnated and wants me to be a best man at a wedding. No way. <laughs> if it's at a venue, you miss out, Mum. Even if you do come back. Um, and so you know, I've put a few basic principles into my, and eventually got a handle on the program. Um, and joined a few dots to to understand my journey, and that's where I had to go to get to where I am today. Today I've got the least I've ever had, but what I have got is peace, serenity, and and, and control of my own decision making. The best part about it is, if I make a decision today, it's a wrong one. I can make another one. Yeah. For fifty something years yes. before that, <laughs> if I made a wrong one, I couldn't make another one. That's that's the, you know, the, and that's huge. It just sounds uh, flippant to a degree, but it's absolutely huge. Yeah. So like all 12-step programs, you've, to keep it, you've got to give it away. So what sort of things do you do in GA well, to do that? I, uh, I was, it was drummed into me in the early days to keep this program, you've got to give it away. Mm. Uh, and that's service work. And I've been involved in service work for, you know, on or off the whole time I've been here in some way. Like one of the philosophies of the fellowship that – their primary purpose is to help the compulsive gambler who needs and wants help. That's not to say every person that comes through the door is a compulsive gambler, but they may get there, um, and the important thing is they're there. They can sow the seeds for down the track. As I mentioned before with my alcohol situation, um, <clears throat> I found out that I was a top-up drunk by going to meetings years later. Yeah. Um, but if I'd have got to that meeting at that period of time, I may not have got as far as I did with gambling, you know, mm. but that, yep. just a, that's by the That's mind. life, yeah. yeah. So um, the main thing talking about gambling is that it's not about the money. It's about the, what is it, the, the rush, the, the feeling, the, the forgetting yeah, everything for, else. For me, until I crossed that so-called invisible line sometime after April of 96, um, it was the rush. You know, some of the situations I was in were... You know, it was, it was unbelievable, but that's it was pure escapism. That's really what it boils down to. Because, as I said before, because I, was, I led totally different personal and professional existences, the um, um, they the the rush and the excitement, the the um, just the, the exhilaration of it. Um, you know, and the the, the when I when I'd done a bag full of or lost a bag full of money, it didn't last. How stupid I was! I should have should have planned it for that long. All that sort of garbage that to justify my actions and behaviour yeah. right throughout, one yeah. way or another. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, Sherelle, what do you say to somebody like you, who's still gambling and wants to get out? You're not on your own. Um, because that's where I thought that I was and I thought no one would understand my my situation. You need to reach out. But at the the end of the day, you've got to want to get out and you've got to want the help because if you don't, yeah. you can reach out and just go, oh, look, I'll, I'll half-heartedly do it. You need to be in there 110% yep. because if mm. you're not, it's not going to work. Um, I found that I had to surrender and I had to give in and go, okay, I don't have control over my gambling 
I need to go to Gamblers Anonymous and I need to do this program to the, you know, the 100%. Yep. Um, and so all I can say is if there's anyone out there that feels that, you know, they're on their own or they can't do it or they may have that inkling, even just come to a meeting and see what it's all about. You don't have to say anything. You can just go there and listen to everyone else's stories. But it's important just to get to that first meeting and to reach out for that help. Yeah. Um, because I'm grateful for that I, that I did um, because I've got extended family now um, and I'm on my road to recovery. I don't want to bust. I don't want to go back to gambling. Um, and I want to continue down this path and the way that I want to be is I want to be able to help other gamblers um, to fight this addiction. Um, I want to be there to, to, you know, encourage other people that they're not on their own and we can fight this. Um, and that's what I want to do. I just want, sort of want to be able to help other people um, that are in my predicament. Okay, thanks. Um, if you'd like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, then you can phone them on 03 9696 6108 or go online uh, gaustralia.org.au. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today, so I'd like to thank Sherelle and Alan for coming into 3CR Studio and sharing their Gamblers Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you for thank having you. me. Thank you for having us. I uh, hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about the impact of alcoholism on families and we'll be joined by some members of Allen on Family Groups. Uh, stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks again for listening to Living Free program today. 